If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 2. What we're going to try to do is figure out what happened that first Christmas, and we're going to look at how people confronted the crib of Jesus Christ, and they reacted in very different ways. So let's read, uh, starting in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We have seen his star as it arose, and we have come to worship him. Herod was deeply disturbed by their question as well as all of Jerusalem. If you're in your Bible, skip down to verse 9. After this interview, the interview with Herod, uh, the wise men went on their way. Once again, the star appeared to them, guiding them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house where the child and his mother, Mary, were, and they fell down before him and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But when it was time to leave, they went home another way because God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Now, I've told you before that, that my favorite vacation, other than family vacation, because we, we try to take two vacations a year, one with the children, one without the children, and, and we think that's healthy. Well, our favorite vacation without the children is to go on cruises. And, and we've now been on four cruises on three different cruise lines. So we're not rookies. We're not experts, but we're not rookies. And, and we have some certain expectations when we go on these cruises. One of the things that I do um, every week is I get a newsletter from a place called Vacations to Go. I love Vacations to Go. They are specialists in the cruise travel agency business. And so every week in my inbox, I get uh, Vacations to Go, the special deals. And they have this thing called the 90-day ticker. And on the 90-day ticker, they'll list the best cruises leaving anywhere out of the United States um, in the next 90 days. And, and so what I'll do is I'll look at these things, and there's unbelievable prices. They said the prices right now are better at any time since, they, uh, since 9-11. Right after 9-11, the cruise industry just dropped off. Right now, cruise prices are, are great. And so I'll click on these different things, and I'll go, Janie, check this out. There's a, there's a 40-day cruise around the world, and it's only $2,000 a person. You know, well, and if you don't have $2,000 per, uh, per person, it doesn't matter how good the price is, you know, if you don't have it. But, but I dream about these exotic locations. But really, the whole purpose I have in getting this newsletter is I look at the cruises that are leaving out of Galveston. Why Galveston? Because you don't have to pay... Uh, for, for a flight to Galveston. I can just drive down to Galveston. So those are ones that mean the most to me. And I pay attention to them because I want to know the absolute stinking cheapest time of the year to go. And Janie and I will save up for two or three years, however long it takes, and then we'll go on a cruise. And we get, we're going to go on one next year. And so I've been looking at this and, and watching this, and, and I'm, I'm not real loyal when it comes to price. I mean, really, I just go by price. I'm not real loyal to any one travel agent. If you're a travel agent, I'm sorry. But I, 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 I'm cheap, and so I, I want the cheapest thing possible. So even though I've gone with Vacations to Go three different times on, on my four cruises... What I'll do is I'll check all the websites and then I'll call other travel agencies and I'll even call whatever cruise line it is that I'm going to go on and I'll say, hey, this is the best price I can get. Can you match it? And, and when they say, no, there's no, you need to book that. You know, if, if the cruise line says you need to book it with that other person, then I'm like, okay, I feel pretty good about that and I book it. Once I hand my money over to the travel agent, we've reached a whole new level of expectation. I don't, I don't expect Jack until I turn over that money for, um, for my deposit. Then I have a new level because I've given you some of my hard-earned cash. When I call, I expect to know that somebody's going to answer the phone. And, and my particular cruise specialist who helps me, I want to know his extension so that I can get through to a human being when I call. And if they're on the line, I expect them to respond to me in a reasonable amount of time. And, and the, the job description for a travel agent is very, very clear. 
know more about the itinerary than I do and point me to the best possible vacation experience that I can have. I want my tickets on time. I want to know if there's a change in the itinerary, which happened to us a few years ago. It changed because one of the one of the engines, there's two engines on the boat, and one of them went down, and so they travel very slowly with one engine. Well, the, the cruise was going to get back to Galveston later than, than anticipated, so we got a phone call and said, hey, you need to travel a little bit later to, to get on your cruise. I want to know those things. So if you're my travel agent, I have expectations of you. Know more about my itinerary than I do and point me to the best possible vacation experience that I can have. So what in the world does that have to do with Christmas? Well, if you think about it, everyone here is traveling somewhere. Your life is pointed in a certain direction. And I want you to think about this. If you continue, whatever you're doing with your life, where are you going to end up? Because everyone is traveling in a certain direction. And we've said that this in this new series that, that cribs um, means the crucial relationship initiated by the Savior. When we think about Christmas, every one of us is confronted by the crib of Christ every Christmas, and it reveals the direction that we're going. And so when you think about it, what happened 2,000 years ago is God took, took Jesus and, and he, he placed him in the womb of a peasant girl. And eventually, that, that child was born, the Son of God was born, he grew up and, and he lived a sinless life and he eventually died on a cross and he was raised from the dead so that you and I might have a way to get to heaven. It's a personal decision that each one of us has to make. And at some point in our lives, we have to make that choice, whether we're going to follow God, whether we're going to open up our lives um, and, and make our lives a crib for Christ, or whether we're going to continue doing things our own way. And, and I want you to think about um, some things. God wants to call the shots. He, he has created you designed you in your mother's womb so that you um, you will worship something. And uh, and when we finally re- realize that, that our lives are empty and meaningless and we won't hit on all cil- cylinders unless we open up our lives and make our heart the crib of Christ, when we realize that and, and accept Him, then our lives begin to have meaning and purpose and, and hit on all cylinders. But it's a personal decision. So this, this crib of Christ is going to show us where we're headed. And last week we learned about Herod. Herod had a particular reaction to the crib of Christ. Was that good or bad? Those of you who are here. Do you have a good reaction to the crib of Christ? He freaked out. And, and we learned that, that when he was confronted with the crib of Christ, with the, with the real king, he, uh, he misused people, he misled people, and he mistreated people. In other words, we found out where Herod was headed, and it was not towards God. Herod thought he was in control, but the more he tried to, to exert his control, we realize he's out of control and headed for a Christless, a godless eternity. Everything he did revealed he was out of control. And we said that you show us a person, you show me a person who has issues of power and control, someone who's gone Herod, and I'll show you someone who mistreats, misleads, and misuses other people. Uh, it happens every time and it shows us who's in control. It shows us who, uh, where you're headed. We found out that, that Herod bowed up his, his chest against the, the crib of Christ. Today we're going to see a very different reaction to the crib of Christ. Back to the Bible, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. Okay, we got to stop and ask some questions. If you've heard the, the, the Christmas story all your lives, we read it. We read it back when I was a kid. We read the Christmas story every year. But i got to stop and ask, why? Why in the world would some rich dudes from an eastern land, why would they travel all of these miles um, to, to see a child that they don't even, they're not even related to. I can understand a grandparent traveling a long ways to see a grandchild, someone you're related to, but I don't, I, 
sorry, I'm not, I'm not going thousands of miles to see a kid I don't know be born. Yay, I'm happy for you. I like babies. But I'm, I'm not going to travel that way. Why would these guys do that? Pack up and, and head thousands of miles to see a baby. Well, the answer is in, in verse 2. Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We have seen his star as it arose, and we have come to worship him. Very different response than Herod. Herod was worried and, and ends up killing all of the babies under two years of age in, in uh, Bethlehem because he's so worried that this king might eventually take his throne. The wise men, we found out where their lives were headed. Their lives were headed towards worship. And everyone here worships something. God designed you in your mother's womb to worship something. Worship is not a choice. And so, and because you were made to worship, you will worship something. Even if you're not a Christ follower, you will worship something. And we can spend a great deal of time talking about the different things that people worship, you know, sports and money and fame and power and, and drugs and all these different things. But think about this. Every culture everywhere since the beginning of time has worshipped something. And it's sad to say that most people waste their worship. If you know anything about the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments are all about our relationship with God. And if you were to boil down those four commandments to a simple phrase, it would be, don't waste your worship. Uh, God is saying, don't do that. So the wise men were on their way to worship. They realized that something was missing from their lives. They realized there was an emptiness there and they were headed to worship. They were trying to find the meaning of life. And when they encountered the crib of Christ, they found it. But let's back up even further. Why were the wise men even looking at the sky? That makes no sense. I mean, you can be astronomers, but why were they looking at the sky and why did they see this star and immediately drop everything and travel these thousands of miles to get to where the Christ child were, uh, where he was born? Well, it, if you begin a study on the life of Jesus and the background of Jesus, you'll discover that most scholars believe that this road trip that we just read about began about 600 years before the wise men were even born. This is, this is really cool. We gotta go back to Daniel of the Old Testament. You remember Daniel? Daniel in the lion's den, that Daniel? That's the one we're talking about. 600 years before the wise men even were born, Daniel had some things to say in the Old Testament. And, and I gotta kind of explain to you what happened. We have a map of, of the Babylonian Empire. Did you put that up there, Danielle? It's down at the bottom of your, there we go. Okay, you see Jerusalem over here next to the Mediterranean Sea or the Great Sea, and you see kind of the travel route. Here's what the Babylonians did. They eventually took over all of the known world. Whenever they would conquer a city, and, and they, they had power over all of Israel, but when they would conquer a city, what they would do is they would find the, the brightest and the best and the strongest men, young men, and they would take them to the new country because they're, they're pretty smart. How do you, if you're, if you're thousands of miles away, if your king is thousands of miles away, how do you control a country that's, that's so far from you? Well, you take the smartest with you and, and you leave the others behind and then you leave somebody in charge who is a puppet to your kingdom. So what they did was they, they raided all of the best and the brightest from Jerusalem when they conquered it and they took Daniel, they took Hananiah, Azariah, and, and Mishael. You don't know those names, do you? You've probably heard Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, those were their Babylonian names. They took all of these guys to uh, way over here. You see where the end is over there in Susa, in that area? Uh, Babylon, Nippar, all of those places. They took them thousands of miles from home, and they began to indoctrinate them in the Babylonian culture, so they gave them different names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were the asbestos boys, you know, the ones that were in the fiery furnace. 
They, uh, they stood up against the king. They didn't bow down to his 90 foot idol statue of himself. They refused to bow down. So he throws them in the fiery furnace. God protects them. They come out and the, and, and the king goes, wow, that's a pretty powerful God. I think we'll serve him. Well, then another king comes on the scene and, and all the people got jealous of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so they, they set up this, this, uh, test uh, and they have the, the king. And this one is, is Darius, the Mede. And, and Darius signs this statue which says, you can pray to no one except Darius. He signs it and, and, and it's, it's according to the Medes and the Persians and it can't be gone back upon. And so they catch Daniel because Daniel was a man who knew God. They catch him praying to God. And so they take him to the king. The king liked him. The king knew that he was a good guy and he didn't want to throw him in the lion's den, but he'd signed the law and the law said you had to throw him in the lion's den. So he throws him in the lion's den and the Bible tells us that, that the lion's mouths were closed by the angel of the Lord. And, and I, coolest thing ever, just imagine Daniel down there hanging out with lions, you know, maybe using them for a pillow and using them like you would your pet. And, and lest you think that these were trained, tame lions, the next day the king comes and pulls Daniel out of the pit and he's alive and he goes, wow, this God of yours is pretty cool. All of the people that designed this law, like Congress, he throws them in, throws not just the men, but their wives and all their children. And, and the Bible says before they even hit the bottom of the pit, the lions rip them apart. And and so Darius goes, wow, I think we'll serve your God. If your God can protect you, and obviously we're going to serve that God. So all of a sudden, Daniel becomes the second in, in command in all of the kingdom of Babylon because of his God. And the king says, we're going to worship that God because he not only protects people from a fiery furnace, he protects his people from lions. And we're going to serve his God. So Daniel knew the Old Testament. At that time, all they had was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Daniel had all of this power and this prestige and people were following his God. And I want you to look at a verse that Daniel knew that I have no doubt that Daniel explained to the people in that culture. It's Numbers 24, 17. It says, I see him, but not in the present time. I perceive him, but far in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. And because of his position, people began to listen to what Daniel had to say. And God revealed all kinds of cool things to Daniel. You need to read the whole book. It's about 10 or 11 chapters. Great book. And, and he was a prophet where God allowed him to see into the future things that were going to happen. But he also allowed Daniel to look in the past several hundred years before at this verse from Numbers and realize this was talking about the king of, of the Jews who was going to be born somewhere in the future and his arrival on the planet was going to be announced by a star. God is just so cool. Go back to the map, if you would, Daniel. So you've got all of these leaders from Jerusalem, thousands of miles from home, hundreds of years before the wise men are born, teaching all of these people about the true God. And you may be in charge of us now, Babylon, but there's going to be a day that the star is going to rise and you're going to see it and it's going to lead you to a new king. So you think about that. God never wastes a detail. God never wastes a good exile. They've been exiled from Jerusalem. They're thousands of miles away. God doesn't waste that. He begins to prepare the way because he realized there's going to be some wise men who are born 600 years later who are going to need a travel agent to kind of pave the way and show them where the new king is going to be born. Do you understand how God was orchestrating this from the beginning? And you see that he has it at just the right time so that the wise men see it and they look up and they say, hey, maybe that's the star. And this star was different because it moved. And they said, let's follow that star wherever it leads and let's find the king of the Jews. 
So everybody was waiting for that. And God is so amazing. He knew these, these guys would be born in the exact place where Daniel had been exiled. And God just does not waste a detail because he's so amazing. So God works all of this out hundreds of years before. Now, fast forward to today. All right, fast forward 2,000 years from the time the wise men saw the star. And I want you to think about those of you who are believers. Some of you here are not believers. And that's okay. You just keep coming and we believe that one day you will be. But those of you who are believers, I want you to think back in your life before you were a Christian. I want you to think about that time before you made your heart the crib of Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about the earthbound travel agents that God put into your life. He may have orchestrated events even before you were born so that at just the right time, He would bring people into your life to point you to Christ. On your listening guide, you have a star. And, and we're going to talk about that. Um, and, and I'm going to have you fill some things in in just a second. For me, my earthbound uh, travel agent was my parents. But even before that, before I was born, there was a great uncle. My mom was the oldest of eight children. And, and when she was a child, she was the oldest, only one old enough to go to church. My great uncle, Walt, used to come by and pick her up. This was in the 30s, um, early 30s, late, late 20s. And he would come and pick her up and take her to church every Sunday. And they told me that, that, you know, it was at a time when, when if it was rainy and muddy, it was all dirt roads and, and the cars of that time, not everybody had a car, but if you did, it didn't really work real well in the mud. So if it had been stormy out there on the farm, my uncle would hitch up the, the horses to the buggy and he would come by every Sunday. My mom had one dress and she would stand out by the post out there and wait on my uncle to pick her up eventually my mom was in church and she heard about this Jesus Christ. And there was a day my mom opened up her heart and made it a crib for Jesus Christ. And then when my mom and dad got married, they were faithful in church. They still go to church today. Mom's in one of those traditional churches and she was playing the piano today in a little bitty church outside of Borger, Texas. Mom and dad went all the time. And there was a time when I was six years old, I was sitting on the back row next to my brother and the, and the preacher began to pray. And I tugged on my brother's shirt and I said, hey, I, I, I'm a sinner. <laughs> he's like, yeah, you are. And, and I said, well, I need to go up and talk to the preacher and pray. And he's like, go on. Well, I'm six. And, and I said, you come with me. And so my brother served as a, as a travel agent as well. And he takes me by the hand, leads me down. And I talked to the preacher and I opened up my heart and, and gave my, uh, made my heart a crib for Jesus Christ to be born in. You have one, maybe two people that were earthbound travel guides for you that helped lead you to Christ. So um, do we have that star? I don't know if we put that back there or not. Can you put that up there? Okay, see, there's two lines right in the middle. The bottom of those two lines, leave that blank. I'm going to tell you what to do with that in the middle, in a minute. But if you're a Christ follower, there is someone who served as a travel guide for you. I want you to write their name or names. There may be two people. Somebody helped lead you to Christ, prepared the way so that you could come to the crib of Christ and recognize you were a sinner and open up your life to Him. And I want you to write their name down there on that top line. Leave that bottom line blank. And, and then kind of as an early Christmas present or, or as a Christmas present this year, I want you to write that person or call that person this week and thank them for being a travel guide for you. Thank them for pointing you toward Christ. And then I want you to notice there's five star, uh, five lines that go to the points of the star. However you want to do that on each one of those, write what Christmas is all about. The crucial relationship initiated by the Savior. Just go around the star. I want you to remember that. Crucial relationship initiated by the Savior. What that means is you are the reason for the season. You're the reason Jesus Christ came to this earth in that first crib so many years ago. He sought you before you ever sought Him. 
and he wants to rule on the throne of your life. So the wise men, they were wise enough to recognize something was missing. And what they do, they worshiped. And their worship was a 3D kind of worship. You have this at the bottom of your listening guide, the 3D type of worship. And if you are a, a growing Christ follower, you will be a 3D worshiper as well. Let me explain what those 3Ds are. First is devotion. Devotion. And we see this in, in Matthew 2, verse 11. They entered the house where the child and his mother Mary were, and they fell down before him and worshipped him. Now, whenever you see a manger scene and, and they have the wise men at the manger scene, that's nice and fuzzy and it makes for the nice little manger scene, but it's not biblical. Because you see that when they got there, what does it say? They entered the house and they worshipped. Now, you got to remember, it took them anywhere from a year and a half to two years to make that travel. So um, Mary and Joseph and Jesus weren't hanging out with the livestock anymore. By this time, they'd found a place in Bethlehem. They had moved into a house like you would expect them to. And the wise men, when they came, the star stopped over the house. They entered the house and they worshiped Jesus. Um, if, in biblical times, if you were to bow down before someone, what you were saying was you are greater than I am. You were pledging your life to that one who was greater than you were. You were saying, I devote everything I am and I have to you because you are greater than me. So these wise men from the east travel thousands of miles. As soon as they see the Christ child, they fall down and they worship him and they say, you are the one we've been waiting for. Here is our life. And when you do that, you allow Christ to take the throne of your life. He calls the shots. You ask God to take over the throne. And, and that's what's happening here with the... They had been seeking. That's a key word, seeking. Now, let me explain something real quickly here. In the churches I grew up in, what was preached a lot of time was, was have Christ as fire insurance. Accept Christ so you don't burn in hell. Basically, that's what it was. And so people would say, Ooh, I don't want to go to hell. Give me Jesus, you know. And, and so they, people would come up and they would pray and there'd be no change in their life. And, and somewhere along the way, I began to study and I began to listen to other preachers and they, they said, there is no such thing as, as a separation between asking Christ to be the Lord, the King of your life, and, and the, the Savior of your life. Somewhere we got that mixed up through the thousands of years that, that we've been worshiping Jesus. There is no, no separation. So here's the deal. When you bow before Christ, you bow first because you're saying, I want you to be on the throne of my life. You're the one who's most important in my life. When he is on the throne of your life, as a byproduct of your bowing before him, you're saved from hell. Does that make sense? There's no separate, there's no such thing as I accept Christ as Savior, but I'm not going to make him my Lord. That does not exist in the scripture. You bow. He becomes your Lord. He comes to the throne of your life. And then, oh yeah, because you're adopted into heaven, because you're adopted into his family and you get to go to heaven as a byproduct of him being your Lord, then he becomes your savior. Does that make sense? He is your Lord. That's the issue. Who is sitting on the throne of your life? Now, I want to show you another promise from even hundreds of years before the one that that uh, Daniel was talking about. This is in First Chronicles 28, 9. And here's what's happening. David, he was a king in the Old Testament times. He's about to die. He's about to pass on the kingdom of Israel to his son Solomon. And he says some really cool things here in First Chronicles 28, 9. He says, the Lord sees every heart and understands and knows every plan and thought. Here it is. 
Remember I said that the, the wise men were seeking? That's a key word. Look what it says. If you seek Him, who? God. If you seek Him, you will find Him. If someone, the Bible says, is truly seeking, they're not doing the Herod thing, because remember Herod said, oh, if you find the Christ child, tell me and I'll come worship Him. He was, he was lying. He was using people. If you're doing what the wise men were doing and you're truly seeking Him, God says, don't worry, I will make sure that you find me. I'll make it very possible. I will invade your life in a way that is so real you can't deny it. You'll understand who I am and you'll open up your heart and you'll give me the throne of your life. That's what happened with the wise men when they finally saw Jesus. They bowed and worshipped Him. They, they were devoted to Him. But there's a second D in the, in the true 3D worship. And that's dedication. Dedication is the second D in 3D worship. And we get this from the second part of verse 11. Matthew 2, 11b. They entered the house, they the wise men, where the child and his mother Mary were, and they fell down before him and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I told you God doesn't waste the details, so these, these gifts um, have some meanings behind them. I think it's really interesting because gold is a gift that you would give to a king. Notice that the wise men never offered the gold to King Herod. Who did they offer it to? The, the, the baby in the crib. So this was something you would, you would expect to give to a king. They opened up their treasure chest and they gave him gold. The second thing was frankincense. Frankincense is really interesting because in the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system. Once a year, the, 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 uh, the priests would offer sacrifices to God. It was, it was called a sin sacrifice, the day of atonement. And so they would offer this sacrifice to God to cover the sins temporarily of all the people until Jesus Christ was born. Frankincense was one of the uh, ingredients that they used. They would, they would burn this offering to God and they would take the blood and they would sprinkle that over all of the people and, and that would cover their sins temporarily. The reason we know it's temporarily is because you had to do it every year. You had to sacrifice this, this animal for the sins of the nation. Blood had to be spilled. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the frankincense is identifying Jesus not only as a, as fully human, as fully a man, but he was fully God. You would never give this incense to someone that, that was not deity, that was not God in flesh. So the gold, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The frankincense, he is God in flesh. And then the myrrh. The myrrh was, was an embalming spice that you would use when someone was dead. That seems like a weird gift to give to a little child unless you understand that this child is going to grow up and be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. Then it makes perfect sense. So the, the myrrh was, was foreshadowing the death that Jesus was going to die on the cross when they were going to embalm His body and lay Him in the tomb. But the cool thing is He didn't stay there. The only founder of any world religion that's not in the tomb. You go to Muhammad's tomb, he's there. His bones are there. Buddha, he's there. Joseph Smith and the Mormons, he's there. You go to Jesus' tomb, He's not there because He rose from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to follow a living guy, not a dead guy. I read a story years ago about uh, a guy who was a Buddhist and, and he gave his life to Christ. And, and someone asked him, why in the world would you make such a radical decision? You're, you're leaving your whole family and your country and your, everything behind to follow Jesus Christ. And he said, well, it's like this. If you were on a path, and you come across two men. One's dead. One's alive. Whose directions are you going to follow? I'll, I'll follow the live guy. 
dead guy didn't work, so I'll follow the live guy. The wise men had to be rich to fund this trip, but what they did was they put their money where their mouth was. They opened up their treasure chest. Now, we can bow down, we can worship, and we can sing, oh, I lift my hands on high, and I can, I can have this emotional feeling. And, and honestly, I don't put a lot of stock in emotional feeling. I love to sing. I've been to youth camps. I've been to, to all kinds of different things. And, and it's great to, to have this really energetic worship and, and just to feel like you're in the presence of God. But feelings don't last. And, and you can tell me you're devoted. Woo! And I can say, is Jesus your Lord? Yes, Jesus is my Lord. How's he Lord? Well, emotionally, I feel him. Psychologically, I know it. There is psychological mumbo jumbo. I, I get, relationally, I know that I've given my life to Christ. What about financially? Oh, don't go there. That's serious. Exactly. The Bible says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, so don't tell me that you are devoted and dedicated to God if you never bring a birthday present to the birthday boy. We have the joy basket at the back. Yeah, y'all weren't ready. I don't usually say that at this point. And a lot of people ignore the, ignore the joy basket. <laughs> I'll quit saying it. They ignore it. But what it does, every time you walk by, it reveals your heart. So, yay if you're devoted to God. You're not dedicated until you open up your wallet. So, if if you're not giving to God on a regular basis, you're not bringing a birthday present to the birthday boy, you're not being like the wise men. If you're not like the wise men, that would make you what? Unwise? Just a thought. Third D in 3D worship is direction. This is kind of my favorite part of this whole deal. Direction. Devotion, dedication, and direction. Matthew 2.12 But when it was time to leave... They went home another way because God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Now, we saw that the wise men were devoted. They fell down, they worshiped Jesus. And they proved their, their worship when they opened up their treasure chests and they gave to Him. But after worshiping and giving, it says they went home another way. In other words, they went another direction. When you truly worship God, He changes you. One of the things we, I talked about years ago in youth ministry, I've, I've even heard Wes say this in, in prayers because we've talked about this. True worship is when I come and I exchange hearts with God. He leaves with my heart, I leave with His heart. When that happens, when I truly worship God, it changes me. And I'm no longer going the same direction. I don't get to call the shots in my life. And, and if you if you think about it, it makes sense. God designed you in your mother's womb, for Him to sit on your throne. And you will worship something, and your life will not make sense until you worship God. And so, think about this. A car is not designed to go in a lake. We see that on the news quite often. Car goes in the lake, car sink. It's because it wasn't designed to go there. Um, you got an airplane? How many times do you see an airplane driving down 155? Going to Tyler. That would be newsworthy. Because the airplane was not designed to go on 155 or any of the other places other than an airport. You were designed to have God sit on the throne of your life. The baby in the crib to sit on the throne of your life. 
And you will not function properly until you open up your life and make it a crib for Jesus to be born there. You see, when when Janie and I, when we both are worshiping God, 3D worshiping God, I'm going to tell you something. There is no fighting. God changes us so that our, our marriage is wonderful. And that's the way God wanted it to be. But if one of us removes God from the throne and we try to take over, I'm in charge, there's going to be conflict. And, and let me clear up another misconception here. By the way, Miranda, if you want to go get Braden, we're going to have a baptism afterwards. She's got to go get her son and get him ready for, for baptism. Um, I just got to clear something up for you about this worship thing. A lot of people think that worship only happens when we get together on Sundays or if we, if we get together in, in small groups and homes. And, and a lot of people have this misconception that you come here to worship. That's wrong. That's not biblical. If you are a believer in Christ, all of your life is worship and you come to church whenever the church gathers, you come already worshiping. Make sense? The reason so many of us miss God when we come here is because we're so far away from Him, we wouldn't know His voice if He were to shout out at us. If He were to come up and tap us on the shoulder and ask to sit down next to us, we wouldn't recognize Him because we're so far from God. We don't come worshiping. We come expecting someone to help me worship. The reason we get ticked off sometimes at the music, oh, that worship wasn't any good. Excuse me? You've missed Jesus. If you want to blame the preacher or the band, you've missed it. You come worshiping and you see what kind of difference it makes in who you are and the direction of your life. And see, everything we do is worship. How you treat, if you're an employee, an employer, how you treat your employees is worship. If you have a job, how you treat your employer is worship. How you treat your spouse is worship. How you treat your kids is worship. Kids, how you treat your parents or siblings is worship. It's great to be the preacher's kid, isn't it? Everything we do as believers should be an act of worship. The Bible says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. When, when I mess up is when I do something out here and I want a pat on the back. 